Hello, and welcome to the GCU podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Do you want to all come back down and take your seats? Um, Exodus 34, 6. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Um, it is very lovely to be with you all this afternoon. And um, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Megan. Um, and it's lovely to get to share with you. Um, today we are current, we're continuing our series that we're in at the minute, which is God Has a Name, based on the book by, I've got props today, guys, based on the book by um, writer and teacher John Mark Homer. Um, ex- and it kind of explores who God says he is. Um, doing this series kind of came from us feeling that God was calling us to know more clearly who he is and who he says he is, um, to be drawn back into that awe and wonder that comes from truly knowing him, which is why we're sitting in this verse. This verse is the most quoted verse in the Bible, by the Bible, um, and it lays out who God is. Now, the last part is a little bit daunting. And that's why the lovely Annabelle is going to speak about it in a couple of weeks' time. So let's not worry about it today. It's, it's not as bad as it sounds. Um, I promise. So last week, Luke asked the question, who is God? And spoke about what, how many of us have different perceptions of what God might be. Exploring the idea that we have created God in our own image. I think he used the, the classic line of um, God created us in his image and we returned the favor. Um, Luke spoke about the name of God being Yahweh and how this is an important part of his character. God is personable and wants to know us on a personal level. He longs for partnership and invites us into what he is doing. Today, we're going to be looking at that second Yahweh. So in some of you, you're maybe thinking, I haven't read Yahweh in the Bible before. It's because it's often put as the Lord, but that's where in the original Hebrew, it would have said Yahweh. Okay, we're all, we're all together. It's going to be a bit like that today. You've got you to gotta keep nodding, keep, keep traveling with me. Um. So why is it repeated? Why is God, Yahweh, saying his name twice? Is it to show us that he's an intimate and personable God? Or is he signaling his name because words like God and Lord aren't specific to just Yahweh and actually there are other gods he needs to stand out from? I think it's a bit of both. Today we're going to be diving into this idea that there are other gods. They are real and they have power over this world, but Yahweh reigns above them all. So stay with me. No one run out the door. I swear, I swear we have biblical precedence for this and we're going to get into it. Um, so let's look at it together and unpack what Yahweh has for us. Um, so Heavenly Father, would you come and meet with us? Would you give us ears to hear what you have to say? Would you instill in us a curious heart? And would we be excited to explore what it is you're inviting us into? In your name we pray. Amen. Um, if you've ever met me, and I literally mean if you've ever like had a five-minute conversation with me, this will probably have come up. I'm a little bit of a film fan. Um, I love a bit of Netflix. I once had a lecture, announced in a lecture. I'm sure Megan's completed Netflix. For the record, I haven't. But um, I think it would be fair to say if I haven't watched it, it's probably not worth watching. <laughs> However, I'm an absolute nightmare when it comes to guessing the plot. 
Um, whether it's a plot twist or a revelation or just a normal plot line, I'll get it. I read Fight Club, weird book, by the way. I, I haven't actually watched the film yet, but weird book, that's not important, but anyway. Um, and I guess the, the kind of plot twist before it got halfway through. I watched Shutter Island and sent my mate a voice note with the plot line 10 minutes in. And as you can see, I watched this film called Last Christmas and got the plot line nailed fairly quickly with it too. Choose to spoil this one over the others because I didn't feel anyone was going to get aggravated with me over this, over spoiling this cinematic masterpiece. Um, so for me, Last Christmas was so obvious, like, come on, right. The film's called Last Christmas. The song literally goes, Last Christmas. Oh, that worked really well, guys, thank you. So, you know, like, come on, it literally said the whole plot line in that two lines of the song. If you don't know what happens, essentially it's revealed that this guy she's been hanging out with is imaginary because he died last year and she carries his heart because she had a heart transplant. It's a bad film. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a bad film. Okay. It would have been harder to not guess the plot line. Yeah, my friend Susanna, as you can see here, was shocked and we did call about it later like it wasn't just on the, and we mentioned the conversation she was like I didn't see it coming at all like I, I don't know how you got it I'm so shocked um I don't know if that says that I'm a really good puzzle solver or if it maybe says more about Susanna <laughs> we'll leave that there um despite the mammoth amount of information we as a viewer were being given that this wasn't real she completely missed it um, it's a bit like in a murder mystery when they reveal who did it and go back over all the facts and you realize you saw it all happen on screen, but maybe you didn't see it because it hadn't been directly brought to your attention or you felt like it wasn't relevant. Maybe you're like me and when you watch a film, um, you have the plot sussed out straight away. You know it all already. You're on the lookout for it. You're a pro at this. My people. <laughs> maybe you're Susanna, completely shocked and blown over. Or maybe you're playing games on your phone and you miss the whole plot. I think the scripture we're unpacking and looking at can be a bit like that. It can be a bit like the plot twist in a film, the revelation of who the killer was in a murder mystery or the revelation in Last Christmas. The evidence was there the whole time. It's very clearly and evidently written throughout the Bible, but our attention has been taken elsewhere. It's been rationalized away, not put directly in front of us, or we have been made to believe that it's not relevant. Tim Mackey, who's the co-founder of The Bible Project, and The Bible Project someone I'm going to mention a couple of times, but it's essentially a really good resource for understanding the Bible better. They've got podcasts, they've got videos, you can check out their website. I've not been endorsed for this. Um, but in a podcast discussing the topic, um, John, his co-host, was like, Tim, this sounds really heretical. And Tim goes, it sounds like you've been reading your Bible, and to be honest, not even that closely. Today we're going to be looking at what, for me, was a massive plot twist in Revelation when I discovered it four years ago. And when I unpicked it and looked further, it was so obviously stated within the scripture, yet somehow I'd missed it completely. This might feel the same for some of you. Maybe it's blindingly obvious to you, and you're all over this. You've heard this before. You're like, Megan, I'm a pro. I don't need to be here. I know this. Maybe it's going to be a complete shock and shake up your world and you're kind of sitting on the edge of your seat like, this feels like heresy. I don't like this. I want to leave. Or maybe it's simply something you've never thought about. We're going to wrestle with some big ideas and ultimately the way I want to leave you with regards to this talk is with a curiosity. 
I want you to come away wanting to unpick and discover more than I can ever give you in the allotted time. And actually, at the end of this talk, I've got some resources that you can access for free and at a cost to help you unpack more about this topic. I want you to disagree, and I want you, or I want you to agree, but I want you to really form your own views and opinions about this. This is a contested topic. This is a topic that people have different opinions on. Um, so I want you to just have the availability to have all the information and try and form your own. What we're speaking about might cause you each to react in different ways. Maybe it won't stir your heart, but it might change your worldview. And I want to give a clear disclaimer out the gate that it might feel a little bit like a lecture more than a sermon. Today, we are going to be speaking about the existence of other gods, or as referred to in Hebrew, the Elohim. Last week, we looked at God having a name, and today we're going to speak about how that name separates him from the other Elohim. We're going to unpick what that means for us as the people of God and what that means for our world at large. So let's dive into some scripture and see what the Bible is saying, because I think that's a really good place to start. Now, it's going to go like boom, 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 boom. So you got to strap in, you might get whiplash. You ready? Okay. Let's go. You ready? Ready, Paul? Right. Deuteronomy 10, 17, for Yahweh, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords. Joshua 22, 22, Yahweh, God of gods, the Lord God of gods. Psalm 95, 3, for Yahweh is a great God and King above all gods. Daniel 2, 47, the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings. Psalm 82 states, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing, they understand nothing, they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals, you will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Um, essentially, the gods are doing injustice. Um, Yahweh challenges it and he renders judgment. Let's keep going. Um, Exodus 12, 12. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Numbers 33, 4. Upon their gods, also Yahweh executed judgments. Exodus 15, 11. Who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Psalm 86. Among the gods, there is no one like you, Yahweh. Psalm 96, great is Yahweh, most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 97, worship him, all you gods. For you, Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. This bit's saying that the gods should worship him. It's weird, guys. There's so much. Let's keep going. 1 Kings 11, um, we've got Solomon and um, God said, don't marry women from that clan because they, they'll turn your heart after their gods. Now, Solomon did marry women from these other clans because that's what Solomon did. And lo and behold, his heart was turned after their gods. Um, in Daniel chapter 10, we've got Daniel being visited by an angel. Um, if you can, I'm, I'm not going to read this all out. We're going to be here all day. But essentially he's visited by an angel. Now, I've kept in all the bit about the angel because what I want you to note is this description of the angel. Have a wee read. But essentially, it is terrifying. Okay, and that's the bit to take away. When angels are mentioned in the Bible, they are terrifying. There's a reason every single one of them enter with, do not be afraid. It's not because they're just like, don't be afraid, guys. Everything's okay. It's because they're terrifying, all right? 
Um, but we've got this angel comes to visit Daniel and then he's like, sorry, I'm so late, Daniel. I've been wrestling the prince of Persia. Um, and like this whole, and then he's like, I have to go and wrestle, wrestle the, the king of Persia. And Michael's going to come and try and wrestle the prince of Greece. Now, when it talks about the, like these princes, it means that they are Elohim with power over different nations. We're going to keep going. Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14. Um, when you enter the land the Lord your, your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or cast spells, or who is a medium or spiritist who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord because of these same detestable practices the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. And that then gives context to the next bit where we have um, 1 Samuel 28. So Saul has driven out all these like um, mediums and spiritualists and he's been like, no, no, the Lord says no. But then um, Saul didn't listen to God and had um, there was a whole thing. Basically, God's then not talking to him. And um, this, is, this is really like condensed. Go and read it. Um, but basically, Saul, he's not hearing from God. So he's trying to hear from God. And he's like, find me a medium. So he goes off and he finds his medium. And the medium's like, did you not know Saul's banned all the mediums? And he's like, yeah, but you know, it's okay. It's okay. So he then asks her to raise Samuel from the dead. Like, to raise Samuel. Anyway, while she's, she is then um, raising him, well, let me, I'll get to that bit where it's, um, but when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out in a loud voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. Do not be afraid, the king replied. What do you see? I see a God coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. What does he look like? Asked Saul. An old man is coming up and he is wearing a robe. So Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed face down in reverence. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? It's weird. Right, 1 Corinthians 9 to 13. Um, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices pillar partakers in the altar. Am I suggesting then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons too. Are we trying to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And finally, you'll be all happy to hear. In Exodus 20, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments from Yahweh, which are essentially like rules to help and shape and mold the Jewish people, Yahweh begins by stating who he is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. It's the first commandment. Right. It's a lot, isn't it? And it's really strange. And if you haven't thought about it before, and then I'm suddenly reeling off verse after verse after verse from chapters in the Old Testament, the New Testament, you're going, oh, what? Where has this been? Why has no one told me about this? Or I thought this meant something else. So feel free to take a wee minute if you need to go, right, that was a bit weird. Because it was, it does feel a bit strange. Something we probably don't talk about enough. What does it all mean? How does it impact us? And okay, Maybe some of you are like, yep, Megan, I knew all this, but these gods aren't real. Like, it mentions these gods, but do they even have power? So, as Luke unpicked for us last week, the word God is, not a t is a title, not a name. And God can mean something different to every person we encounter. If you were sitting in a room with people from every corner of the earth, and you said, 
do you believe in God? A lot of them will be like, yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, if you then ask the question, the follow-up question of which God do you believe in, there would probably be a couple of different answers. When I was kind of doing some research for this, I was looking at different YouTube videos and there were some like uh, National Geographic ones where they went around the world and asked people who God is. And you had people say, yeah, I believe in God. And then it was like, oh, and I'm Buddhist and I'm Muslim and I'm Christian and I'm Hindu and I'm, um, and I'm a pagan. And I'm like, and there's some woman as well. She talked about, yeah, she believes in the 12 um, like ancient Grecian gods. Like the word God is, is a title. It's not a name. It's not specific enough to whenever we're talking about our God, Yahweh. Um, so there'd be a myriad of different answers is essentially what I'm saying. The English language use of God is deeply confusing and ultimately not really built for purpose. Calling Yahweh the name God is a bit like referring to your friend by their job title or your spouse by husband or wife rather than their name. It's a title, not a name. There might be many husbands or wives in the room, but there's only one that belongs to you. You know, if some like Annabelle's laughing, so if Annabelle came, Annabelle came in and just started yelling, husband, husband, there's a number of people who, if they didn't recognize Annabelle's voice, might turn around because they are a husband. But there's only one Leo in the room. You know, that's why we, why we have names. That's a name, not a title, right? The name Yahweh is repeated to differentiate him from the other gods. Throughout the Bible, we see him represented as Yahweh God to say that he is the God of Israel, not to be confused with the lesser gods. And we'll see that quite a bit. It will say like El Yahweh in the original Hebrew. Yahweh is given a name to differentiate him from the other gods. So Elohim, I've mentioned that maybe a couple of times. It's maybe come up. It's a weird word. We're not quite sure what's going on there. So Elohim is the Hebrew word for God. And the word Elohim is plural. So when we translate Elohim into English, we translate it as God, but it doesn't quite translate properly because the word Elohim is plural and our word for God is singular. So that it, it, immediately that's quite confusing. John Mark Comer described Elohim not as a word, but as a category. He discusses how Elohim is used for all sorts of spiritual beings and is described as an invisible but real spiritual creature. Elohim was used to describe other gods with a small g, or as Lydia put it, the little gods. Um, but it is overall used to describe any spiritual being separate from us. Maybe you think of angels or demons or evil spirits or cherubim or seraphim. Um, however, it's important to recognize that society has given us quite a warped view of these things. Um, so whenever we were reading Daniel, why God had kind of focused on that depiction of that angel, that angel as terrifying. It's to kind of break away from the cultural stereotypes we've been given of angels that sit on top of your Christmas trees, because that's not what the Bible describes. All right, because actually they're terrifying. And I don't think we'd want it on top of our Christmas tree. Could be wrong. Um, so it's more helpful to refer to them as Elohim rather than angels or demons, as these are entrenched in cultural stereotypes. In 1 Samuel 20 at 12, when we, see, when we see that passage of Saul going to the medium and Samuel, um, his spirit coming up, she refers to him in the Hebrew as an Elohim. Now, maybe in your NIV, it might say, I see a ghostly figure, but it's an asterisk at the bottom to be spirits or gods. And later in the Bible, we see scholars begin to differentiate the Elohim further into categories such as demons, as we see in Corinthians but these Elohim aren't good or evil. They're not all against Yahweh, but they're not all for Yahweh. Put simply, they're just not human, not merely of this plane of existence. So when we use the name Yahweh, we are discussing the God of Israel, the God we worship, our Father in heaven. When we use the term Elohim, we are discussing a category for spiritual beings of which Yahweh is a part. 
However, Yahweh is king over these spiritual beings, over these Elohim. Um, in the, the Bible Project podcast, when they're discussing this, they discuss it as if Yahweh is the lion. He's the lion. But he's the only one in existence. And all other Elohim were members of the feline species. So maybe there were like some, some cats, some kittens, some, some cheetahs, some I don't know any other types of felines. If you do, you can fill in the blanks. Um, so they're also, they're, they're also feline in the same way the lion is, but they're no match for the lion. The lion would have them all gobbled down if he wanted to. So there are also gods, but they're no match for the God most high. So Yahweh reigns above all the other gods. I want to go to the next slide there, Paul. Was it? I worked hard on the, the little image of the crown for on top of Yahweh. There you go. Thank, thank you, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> um, so now we have our terminology, right? So we've, got, we've kind of gone through it. Let's come back to the view of there being other gods. I mentioned Yahweh being Lord over the other gods, and we saw that said frequently in the scripture we went through. However, in Isaiah 46, 9, it states that, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. This is not denying the existence of other Elohim, but this is coming back to the feline and lion analogy, saying that Yahweh is far greater than any of the other Elohim. There is no God or Elohim that can match him or take his place. There is none like him. I'm not disputing that. One of the strangest verses I read was Psalm 82. So it says God, and then we've got Elohim. Yeah, it's this one. So it says God, brackets Elohim, because that's what it says in the original Hebrew, presides in the great assembly. He renders judgments among the gods. And we say Elohim again. But this is where we get the, the kind of tricky bit of Elohim being a kind of a plural word, and you have to understand all your Hebrew language to fully understand what's going on there. So I'm going to trust the scholars that I've read in preparation because I'm not a Hebrew whiz. But first of all, what you're seeing is the Elohim that's read singular, presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment amongst the gods, and that Elohim is read plural. Some translations have the, this is the divine council rather than the great assembly. What we can gather from this verse is that Yahweh has called a council meeting to judge the other Elohim for their corrupt rule of the nations. So you, you know this, the verse that we saw in Daniel where we see the angel talk about the wrestling with the prince of Persia, introducing the idea that these Elohim have power over specific places. Um, and the Bible project, Tim kind of discusses it almost like this idea of this council being like Yahweh's staff team um, with Yahweh as a CEO or leader. But it's important to note that not all Elohim are on God's team. All right. It's a whole thing. And as I said, I want you to go home and look at this because we're only going to be able to touch this on the surface. There's so much to unpack. So Yahweh is above the rest, but in this verse we see Yahweh rebuking them for their corruption. So then the next part of this verse, you've maybe noted, it's also a little bit weird and it refers to the sons of the Most High. It might stop you in your tracks. Isn't Jesus the only Son of God? And there's a couple of different arguments around the sons of the most high section of this verse with no clear definitive answer. Some take it to mean that like Yahweh, they are Elohim. So part of the same species created by Yahweh, as is everything. They are therefore sons, similar beings, but lesser. Others look at the issue being more so with how we've come to view Jesus. Um, scholar Michael Heiser views the language we use for Jesus being slightly incorrect as when translated to English, we hear begotten son almost in like a birthing sense, 
or only son rather than it meaning unique. Jesus is off Yahweh. He is Yahweh. He is not created by Yahweh. Therefore, Jesus is unique from all the other sons of the Most High because he's not separate from Yahweh. He is not ruled by Yahweh, but instead is Yahweh. Okay? I'm going to move on because this gets confusing and ultimately it's not what we're focusing on today. And there's a reason multiple books have been written about the subject. Okay. Next big topic. So now, you may be asking if this means the Christian faith is a polytheistic faith. I'm sure everybody in this room, that was the question all of you had on your lips. Yeah, I know things, guys. Um, so polytheistic means the belief in many gods rather than monotheistic, which is the belief in one. If this is something that interests you, if you're really not sure about this, I would say go and sit with that, delve into some theological work around the subject, um, because this could be a dissertation topic in itself, never mind a Sunday talk. Um, the short answer, the really short simplified answer is no, because we only believe one God to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving. And we believe there's only one God who reigns above all the other Elohim. And most importantly, we only worship Yahweh. Okay? The long and the short of what I'm saying is that the Bible is littered with references to Elohim and their existence. For me, one of the most poignant references is in Exodus, Exodus 20, when Moses goes to Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments from Yahweh. So as we talked about, they were like rules to help shape and mold the Jewish people. And Yahweh begins by stating who he is. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. So he's saying, I'm the God. You see that quite a bit, you know, I'm the God of Israel. I am the God of David. It's to say, this is the God that I am. I'm not these other gods. He differentiates himself immediately. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Right off the bat, Yahweh makes it clear that he is not just any God, that he is the God of your forefathers, the God who freed you, the God above all gods. He's differentiating himself from other gods. And then he states, you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is literally stating, you shall have no other gods before me. But somehow we've been so quick to say that this is only important to the Israelites in this time. But that begs the question of why does Yahweh so clearly put having no gods before him first? Why would he then not put... Um, don't murder as the first one. Why would he not then put, you know, don't commit adultery? Why would he, you know, because if, if we're saying that God is all-known and all-powerful and timeless, he would know, you know, oh, well, actually, this is just specific to the Israelite people. So I'll, I'll make a real push with Moses and I'll say, look, you need to get this sorted, but we'll put don't murder as the first one. I didn't mean to say that and I've lost my track now. Anyway, you'll have to bear with me, guys. There we go. How have we read this verse and not come to the conclusion that that clearly means there are other gods? I would argue it's because we've combined the first commandment with the second. The second commandment states that you shall have no idols. I know I've definitely sat through teaching on idols in my teenage years where someone has stood up and been like, have you put other gods in your life? Maybe Netflix or Taylor Swift or football. Um, I'm having some laughs. Maybe, maybe other people have as well, but maybe that's a niche thing to Northern Ireland. Um, but have you placed other gods before Yahweh? And now... This might be an idol, and it might be distracting us from Yahweh. And I might even go so far to say there might be a powerful Elohim behind it. And we will come back to that later. But equating these things to God is actually insulting for Yahweh. If we equate these other gods to mere idols, the title of God of God suddenly seems a lot less powerful and meaningful. It's like saying, I am the top of my class. But they're either not, but, but they're either not being anyone else in the class or all the other children being imaginary. 
doesn't really count for anything, does it? Saying God is higher than non-existent gods doesn't strike fear or awe. Saying he is higher than existent Elohim who have power and control over our world, now that is a title worth keeping. When speaking about the reality of the power these gods hold, Michael Heiser, um, who I mentioned earlier is a Christian writer and scholar, draws us to Deuteronomy 32, 17, where it states, They, the Israelites, sacrifice to demons, brackets Shadim, not God, brackets Aloha, another name for, that's not the way you pronounce that, but we're going to keep going. Um, it's another name for God, so Yahweh, to God's Elohim, whom they had not known. All right. The word Shadim, translated to mean devils or demons, is used only here and in Psalm 10667. This comes from the Akkadan Shadu, and in the ancient Near East, the term was neutral. It could speak of a good or malevolent spirit being. They were often cast as guardians or protective entities, though the term was also used to describe the life force in a person. Just keep rolling with me, guys. Um, ultimately, in the context of Deuteronomy 32.17, the Shadim were Elohim, spirits beings guarding foreign territory who must not be worshipped. And later down in the verse, we see Yahweh have a very jealous and angry reaction to the Israelites worshipping these other Elohim, sharing that he will spurn them and hide his face from them. At one point, he even states in verse 21, they made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. Now, this isn't Yahweh saying these gods don't exist. This is Yahweh saying, in comparison to him, these gods are no gods. It's like comparing a Formula One car and a bike in a road race. Ultimately, these Shadim were not to be worshipped. Israel was only to worship her own God, Yahweh. Heiser argues you cannot deny the reality of Elohim, Shadim, in Deuteronomy without then denying the reality of demons, which we see frequently in the New Testament. While there may be disagreement over what kind of entity the Shadim were, it would be agreed that the Shadim were not pieces of wood or stones without power. And we then see this verse in Deuteronomy later cross-referenced in Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 10, where he discusses not eating with those that worship others. Paul discusses how in the Christian faith, the food and wine is just food and wine, but it's then blessed and becomes something more. Paul references communion, implying that once this is blessed and taken, it is an act of worship and a participation in remembering the body and blood of Christ. He states, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? He then discusses the food sacrificed by pagans and states that there's no power in their food or the altar's idols, but their sacrifices were offered to demons. And Paul implies that there, there is therefore power behind this. Paul states that we cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons and speak of provoking the Lord's jealousy, which we saw in Deuteronomy, where Yahweh states that they have made him jealous and provoked his anger. Then let's go to Chronicles. Um, where we've seen Solomon have many wives and Yahweh's told the Israelites not to marry certain people from other groups because surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. But Solomon marries these women anyway. Solomon, if you don't know, was a bit of a player. Um, he had 700 wives. And right, as a side note, that just feels like a lot of work. All right, that just, there you go. And 300 concubines, which in a very watered down, easy to understand way, essentially means women he impregnated. Um, in 1 Chronicles 11, 4 to 9, um, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. 
For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Melech, the abomination of the Ammonites, as on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives. He made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. These Elohim have power to sway the hearts of the kings that Yahweh ordained. I think that's really, that says a lot. Then we also have the gods mentioned in the Bible. We see references to their power, such as Baal, who has people sacrificing their children to them. In Exodus 7, during the story of the Exodus, we see Pharaoh bring his wise men and sorcerers and Egyptian magicians, and their staffs also turn to snakes. So um, Aaron, Moses' brothers, put down the staff, and the staffs become a snake, and then the magicians come in, and they do the same thing. And you see that a couple of times during the Exodus. Um, one scholar commentary states in reference to the sorcerers and magicians, the magic was an object of much attention and study in Egypt uh, is abundantly evident. And then he um, cites a couple of books. It's consisted to a large extent in charms, which were thought to have power over men and beasts, especially over reptiles. What amount of skill and power the Egyptian magicians possessed may perhaps be doubted. Many commenters believe them to have been in actual communication with the unseen world and to have worked their wonders by the assistance of evil spirits. These other Elohim are not just nice myths or um, creations of the people of ancient time, but they are Elohim with a power. Don't get me wrong, not every small g god that people mention is an Elohim. I think I read on Google today, there's been like 18,000 gods that people have worshipped over time. But the Elohim do exist, and they do have power. Now, some of you might be going, yeah, but Megan, this is old news. This was like, yeah, these things were going on in the Bible. What about now? Um, spiritualism and pagan practices are on the rise and are so normalized. We're living in a world that is hungry for the supernatural. Um, my pal in the summer went to see a clairvoyant or a psychic, whatever you want to call them. And um, she came back and she's like, Megan, it was just spot on. Everything she shared was like exact. Um, she felt the lady was speaking with her cousin and with her grandma. And she spoke about how her grandma didn't want to talk. And um, my friend was like, oh, I think it's just because, you know, granny was a really quiet person. And I turned to her and I was like, your granny was like a God-fearing Catholic. I think it might have more to do with that. It rang for me in the same way that that, that line um, in, in Samuel, when Samuel comes up and he goes, why have you disturbed me? And I can't help but notice the similarities. I also recently spoke with a colleague in work who spoke about seeing a clairvoyant who revealed things only her recently deceased father would know. Um, I've heard stories of people praying to other gods and their prayers being answered, but ultimately it's also come with a dark underbody. What starts off well becomes dangerous. For me personally, the teaching of other gods blew my mind when I first learned it because prior to this, I'd spent some time with a, a faith leader from another religion and he spoke about a religious experience he had where he had encountered a god, his god. Um, and I find this so confusing because what he described was how I would describe a spiritual encounter with Yahweh. And I remember sitting there listening to him and I was like, he, he has encountered his god, which... You can imagine I'm leaving like, oh my goodness, what does this mean? What does this mean? What's going on? 
Um, and then I read or I listened to, because I don't particularly like reading books, but I love listening to books, um, God Has a Name. And the idea of the Elohim and the existence of other gods, for me, it was like ding, ding, ding. It just made sense. We spoke about these Elohim having power over places, and John Mark Comer argues that we can still see examples of this today. He implies that we can still see spiritual beings with a measure of power and authority over geographic areas and people groups. Um, he gives examples of such as in the Middle East and further Asian countries, but he also makes reference to an area in Colorado that has experienced two of the worst mass shootings in American history. Um, other, four other shootings have taken place in the same region from Colorado Springs to Denver. Um, and he's like, it could be a coincidence, but I also think we need to consider the possibility that it maybe wasn't. And finally, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but I think there's a question to be asked about what if we viewed certain situations not as immovable, but as spiritual warfare. Within some families, we see generations of abuse, alcoholism, depression, family breakdown, cycles and cycles of what, uh, of, of felt that these cycles cannot be broken. What if there may be an Elohim behind this? What if this is an example of an Elohim having a power over family and we need to take this battle to Yahweh. Just a thought. So, in summary, but we're not quite there yet. There are other gods. They are called Elohim. Yahweh is an Elohim, but he is the chief Elohim reigning above them all. The Elohim have power, not just in the past, but now too. So, what, is it, what does it mean? It means, guys, grab your gear Ghostbusters, right at dawn. Also, right, shout out to Toby. The brief I gave him was, can you like put some G2 faces on a, on a poster from Ghostbusters? And I got sent this after midnight last night. So um, we'll just take a moment. You can stare at that and then we'll move on. The topic of Elohim isn't something that needs to be fear or anxiety inducing. We just need to be aware of it. It's something that's always been there. The only difference is we now know about it. We don't have to go out ghost hunting or, or God busting um, or looking for other Elohim. That's not what's being asked. We just need to be aware. We also have to have grace for those involved with other Elohim. And maybe if that's you today, you need to have grace for yourself. I don't want to shame you. I want to invite you into the way of Yahweh because his ways are greater. But you cannot worship two masters. You have to lay down any other Elohim and pick up Yahweh. Um, as an aside, I recently read, actually, that's a lie. I recently listened to, again, I love an audible, hate a book, um, Jackie Pollinger's Chasing the Dragon, um, which if you've spoken to me, you'll definitely know about this because it was all I talked about for a couple of weeks. Um, she was a missionary who at about 22 went to Hong Kong and saw God move and she's basically been there since. She had no plan, no money, but just trusted God. Um, a large part of her ministry was helping young men break out of the gangs they were entrenched in and break drug addictions. The gangs the boys were involved in also worshipped other gods and they joined through blood oaths. There was a dark power behind it, but every time she led a boy to Christ, she said, you need to choose to follow Christ and not your gang leader or God because the Lord said you cannot have two masters. When the boys did this, when they said, yeah, I, I give my life to Jesus, um, they almost majoritively managed to get off heroin, pain-free, and despite whatever circumstances they may have been, found themselves in, whether it was prison or deep poverty, um, they were like singing the praises of Yahweh for his goodness. We need to be aware that the idols we entertain may have a dark Elohim behind it. These things have power and consequence over your life. An idol is ultimately a piece of wood 
It's an inanimate object or thing, but it might be a gateway to something darker. Perhaps our idols don't look like golden calves now, but instead look like many of the things our culture has normalized. Maybe it's money. We all know the dark underbelly behind money, the way greed corrupts our perception of money and causes us as humanity to darken unholy things in order to receive and keep money. Could there be an Elohim behind this? Consider pornography. It's taken something God has designed, sex, as a healthy and holy union and corrupted it. The addictiveness, the heartbreakingly high numbers of young children accessing it with an average age of 13 for the first time they view it. How this is fed into high numbers of violent sex within young people, high numbers of rape and high numbers of coercive and controlling behavior, ultimately impacting their understanding of healthy relationships. The Children Commissioner has completed a report and within it, it states that young people have expressed that harmful behavior is directly influenced by violent pornography. I can't help but think that maybe there's something else behind this. We need to know that there are other forces at play, but we need to know that Yahweh is above the other gods more. We need to look to him and worship him and trust in him alone, for he is great and greatly to be praised. Do not fear. Trust in the Lord your God. So, Yahweh is king above the gods. Yahweh is above all other Elohim. Yahweh is feared by the Elohim. Yahweh is worshipped by the Elohim. And yet Yahweh has an intimate and personal relationship with us. That's mad. I'm mindful that some of us might be responding to this in different ways. Some of us might have really resonated with the part where I said this might feel more like a lecture than a Sunday sermon. And this has felt merely factual and that's it. And you're like, TikTok, Megan, my dinner's waiting. Some of us might be reeling from the information and either completely disagree or just not know how to cope with the information. Some of us might have really struggled to understand this topic and that's completely okay. It's big and it's meaty and I would love to invite you to access some of the different resources I've mentioned to unpack it further. Um, for some of us though, this topic might have brought up some stuff that we've been ignoring or pushing down. So as I was praying about this and I was prepping, I felt the word freedom was what Yahweh was inviting us into. Maybe you've been involved with other Elohim, and if that's the case, we want to break any strongholds that might have been formed. And we can do that today, or we can do it over a cup of coffee in the week. We'd love to pray with you and give that to Yahweh and invite you into the freedom that only he can give. Um, I also think there's something around the familial fa family strongholds and an invitation for these to be broken and for freedom to be given to families. The final thing is maybe you, uh, is that Yahweh commands his people in the Ten Commandments and in turn commands us to have no other Elohim above him. For some of us, it might have been that we've been aware of this and have been worshipping other gods. But for others, this might not be something we've acknowledged or recognized. Perhaps it's something we've been doing unconsciously. And actually, by not recognizing that we live in a spiritually contested world, we're therefore not recognizing what might have power over us. We are also, therefore, not recognizing the extent of the power Yahweh has. He is the God of the gods, the Lord of lords. He is king, and yet he chooses to meet with us. He tells us his name and invites us into personal relationship. I don't think this teaching is to tell you all about other gods to make you feel fear or to merely just have a bigger understanding of the spiritual landscape within we live. This teaching is to tell you how great Yahweh is. This teaching is to make you go, whoa, the other gods worship him. 
He is so far above and beyond that he deserves awe or awe and wonder. And I think that's really what he's drawn us into. Um, so I'm going to invite the band up. Um, I'm going to pray for the room as a whole. I'm just going to simply pray for some freedom. And I'm going to pray that we're going to get drawn back into the awe and wonder of who God is. Because I think if we truly revered him in the way that we, we want, I think the way we want to, in the way that he calls us to, every person in this room, our lives would look radically different. And that can feel really scary and overwhelming. I'm not saying that with a, an expectation that that's not something quite big to say. But Yahweh deserves all of our awe and all of our wonder. And he deserves the life change that comes with knowing that. So do you want to stand with me? Um, I'm going to invite you to maybe put your hands out in front of you as if you're receiving a gift. Whether anything's resonated with you or not today, I think all of us could use a little bit more awe and wonder when it comes to Yahweh. I think all of us could use a little bit more freedom in our lives. So Yahweh, we invite your spirit to come and meet with us. Increase our awareness of your presence. Father, I want to pray that you would bring freedom into this room. Maybe for the first time, or maybe it's just to keep keeping the shackles off our feet. Father, if there's anyone in this room that's ever spent time with any other Elohim, whether known or unknown, I would pray that you would make yourself known as the God above gods and you would break any strongholds that, that, might, that there might be over them. Father, I pray if there is familial strongholds in anyone's lives or families, that you would come right now by the power of your Holy Spirit and break them. Because you are the God of gods. You are the Lord of lords. There is nothing that you cannot do. Father, I pray for revelation. And Father, I pray that you would increase our awe and wonder of you. Would we be awestruck that the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, he wants to meet with us. He wants to know us. He tells us his name, not just to differentiate from the other gods, but because he wants to be in a personal relationship with us. Father, would that blow our minds? Let this be something that we'll never be able to get over how much he loves us and he fights for us, how much you love us and fight for us. So Father, as we worship, would it be a worship where we meet with you? Would you come and meet with us? Amen.